Testing. Hello. Is this thing on? Testing. Testing one, two. One, two. Chew. Chew. Is there anybody out there? This is the prologue. I just wanted to quickly put a little context to what you're about to hear. I'm a 58-year-old journalist, performance artist and activist, and I'm recording this by myself from my bedroom in Sydney's Inner West. I'm not a tech whiz. So forgive me for any odd noises that you might hear in the background, like aeroplanes or my squeaky chair or the weird sounds my mouth makes when I open it to speak. I'm learning all this on the fly, but that's how I became a journalist and a performance artist. So, hey, can I have an autodidact five? By the time I get through this first series, I probably should add orgasmologist to my list of descriptors because I have unwittingly been studying the topic since puberty. Let me tell you. 45 years can give you such a crick in the neck. So here's the thing. I have a list of all the names of everyone I had sex with. To clarify that, it was either intercourse or just shared orgasms. In real life, I hasten to add, these days you have to qualify that kind of statement. It never occurred to me to keep track of virtual sex, probably because I was mostly drunk. What goes on in cyberspace stays in cyberspace. Hopefully. Anywho, I probably should have just kept a diary too, but I didn't even know why I started keeping a list. Just that when I was 17 and my first boyfriend and I broke up after a year, I thought I needed to sow some wild oats. At that age, I was drawn to older men and very needy. It's only now, looking back, I realise how broken I was because I attracted a lot of jerks. But then, just before my 19th birthday, I met my first long-term partner. I figured that was going to be the end of that. As God is my witness, I would never get hurt or go hungry for orgasms ever again. So I committed the guy's names to memory. It was like a game of concentration because I never forgot the tally. I just wanted to see if I could remember their names. When big cracks appeared in my marriage, I used that list to remind me of the way some other men had treated me by comparison and I felt grateful. But I didn't know any better. After 16 years, the relationship finally imploded. My approach towards oats sowing was radically different. It was all about not getting attached, except when I accidentally got attached. And occasionally I was the jerk. The numbers piled up pretty quickly and this was years before Tinder. By this time, I also had a career as a journalist. Therefore, the mental list became a document with not just names, but also ages. Most were much younger. The expression MILF was just coming into vogue, and I seized it proudly. The word cougar hadn't even been coined yet. I had two kids. I worked damn hard to keep in shape. 
I was arguably at my physical peak. I'd also become a lean, mean orgasm machine during the course of my marriage. I look back on everything I was determined to prove back then, and I have to say, I was still broken. The list still just seemed to be about keeping track. After 16 months of freedom, I fell in love and soon after fell pregnant with my third son and again thought, well, that's the end of that. But wouldn't you know it, another 16 years later, we suddenly broke up. Well, during that 16-year hiatus, dating apps became the norm. It was like being Rip Van Winkle, but instead of waking up with a long beard, I had wrinkles and a lot less muscle tone, but at least my selfie game was on point. Strangely, I had an even higher libido, but I developed a whole different approach to oats. I didn't want conquests. I craved oxytocin. All my kids were grown. I was going through menopause. I was watching myself age, like watching time-lapse photography, but in real time. I was being visited by the ghosts of trauma's past, which meant doing some serious excavating into my psyche to figure out who I really was under all this stuff. It was the worst possible time to be in a cuddle vacuum. Oh, hello, anxiety. Sup? I didn't know what to expect when I got back out there. Turned out because of internet porn, loads of young men were sliding into my DMs, not in spite of, but because of my age. This time, it didn't feel like a compliment, especially when they'd pull out their sexual shopping list just after saying, Hey, I was just a commodity. But that's a whole other podcast about the relentless labelling and objectification of women and how I evolved from being a willing accomplice in my own exploitation to someone who actively campaigns against all forms of it. In the immortal words of Pink, I'm not here for your entertainment. Well, except for this whole podcast daily irony much. So that's me, a twice-divorced, disenfranchised, queer slut, cis woman clutching a document of my so-called misdeeds. I say so-called because I don't have any moral sense of shame attached to the tally, just disappointment that it took me so damn long to work out who I was and what I truly want and need from sex. Then it occurred to me why I wrote it. And it was not just a brag. Okay, maybe a little bit. But this list has turned out to be a PhD-worthy sociological study. Because when I scan the names, it's just like jumping into a time machine. My heart gyna is the DeLorean and the list is the flux capacitor. I remember it all. Most of it. Still quite viscerally, but not in that wank-bank kind of way, more in a objectively curious way. Recently, I started putting asterisks besides the names of people I developed crushes for but didn't marry, and added other names of infatuations with people I didn't jump into bed with. 
This bigger picture gave me an insight into my evolution as a woman and my resulting mental health journey. Because when I finally factored in the most important piece of this puzzle, my troubled childhood, I can look at this list and see so clearly why things went down the way they did. I thought about writing a memoir, but that would take years. So instead, I decided to do this podcast, challenging myself to step up and have a really frank dialogue about love, sex and mental health. Where they merge, where they diverge, where they converge, all the urges. It's a great time to be alive, really, with mental health struggles being destigmatized. After all, our vulnerability is what makes us human, and our human qualities, with all our foibles, is what makes life compellingly interesting. By the way, how cool is the word foibles? But rather than get too serious to begin with, I thought, let's kick it off with orgasm. Sex is the common denominator. It's the ultimate escape, and I often felt the need to run away. The upside of all that is along the way, I discovered loads of different ways to reach orgasm. Some of those ways already gets loads of press already. But for me, personally, the most empowering and fulfilling road to screaming bliss rarely ever rates a mention. Because our dialogue around sexuality is still weirdly immature when you think about it. So I'm here to be part of that conversation and not just the one with the voices in my head. So I figured... If I find any listeners at all, it will be because most of you used the words sex and orgasm as search words. And what can I say, but great minds think alike. Yep, that was me high-fiving myself again in real time. I just scratched my nose. Um, you know what? In full transparency... I momentarily thought about downloading a high-five sound effect. It was like just when I was young and didn't masturbate. I look back now and it's like I didn't even know I had hands. Same principle. So, what's ahead, you may wonder? Let's just say this series is part orgasm workshop and part murder mystery. Because something somewhere along the line killed women's birthright to a completely uninhibited, unbridled, orgasmic emancipation? Here's a clue. It starts with P and rhymes with schmatriarchy. Which is not to say I'm waging war in the battle of the sexes. Far from it. I want to bring us all together in a much more harmoniously aligned way. Not to overplay it or anything, but... I'm on a mission from God, or the flying spaghetti monster, whichever one works for you. My romantic life has been a plane wreck. The eloquent in the room is the black box. My pain, your gain. The time has come, the war is said, to talk of many complicated things. Quick disclaimer, if experience is the best teacher, then I'm an expert. Otherwise, I'm not an expert. Okay, I've got my list, 
I've got my mic. Finally found the balls to record this sucker. And I've thrown together a groovy theme song. We ready? It's time for you to come with me. Content warning. This series will be covering some nitty gritty shit. So if words like vulva and cervix give you hives, it's time to run screaming from your listening device. Oh, and I'm Australian, so I say fuck a lot. What am I not? What see I not? Say what am I not? What saying? Doing what am I not? Doing feeling what am I not? Feeling existing what am I not? Resisting what am I not? Accepting. What am I not comprehending? Why am I not seeing? Why am I not appreciating? Why am I not appreciating? Why can I stand up for myself? Why can't I stand up for myself? This is not the future. I signed This is not the future I signed up for. Signed up for This is the Eloquent in the Room podcast. Pull up a half-empty bean bag, grab a cup of chai. It's time to get a little bit uncomfortable. Was that over the top? I can never tell. Hi, I'm Rose Cooper. Welcome to The Eloquent in the Room, Season 1, 2020, An Orgasmic Oddity. You might be wondering, what's with this whole sci-fi vibe for this series? The answer is kind of obvious. Who doesn't love geeky sci-fi references and who hasn't spent at least some of their lives being completely dumbfounded about all this sex stuff? And who doesn't love David Bowie? But hold on to your hoverboard because this series will also have parallels to the Kubrick film 2001 A Space Odyssey. When I started piecing my air quotes field research together with science to back up my theories around female orgasm, I found myself examining compelling data regarding our similarities to other primates, which Geek Alert immediately got me thinking about the Kubrick film, which starts with the evolution of mankind and ends with a hypothetical version of the future. Just realised hypothetical is redundant in that sentence. Hmm. But consider this. I'm recording this in April and we're in the grip of a global pandemic. Life is a sci-fi film right now, so expect all the metaphorgasms. So yeah, this is episode one, entitled Perception Inception. The future is now. I've got to say I'm pretty fucking pissed off, guys. This is not the future I signed up for. Where's my jetpack? Where's my flying car? Where's the conveyor belt taking me from the bedroom to the bathroom? Where's my fucking robot maid? And why did it take us so long to stop blaming victims of sexual assault? And why aren't there more positive bisexual role models in TV shows and movies? And why in fuck is there still so much myth, misinformation and mystique around female orgasm? Actually, you know what? Fair play to the Jetsons. They pretty much nailed smartwatches, flat screen TVs and Skype. That's right, Rog. So yeah, orgasms. 
What the actual fuck, humanity? When I slide into the DeLorean and set the dial to the early 70s, when I first started what we now know to be, air quotes, my extensive research, um, magazines like Clio and Cosmopolitan had the word orgasm on the cover every other month. There was a joke at the time, something along the lines of, Clio will help you have an orgasm, the Women's Weekly will show you how to cook an orgasm, and Family Circle will teach you how to knit one. The point is, female orgasm was on the tips of everyone's tongues nearly 50 years ago. It wasn't just being normalised, it was being encouraged and celebrated. And I, for one, welcomed my new overlord. Yet here we are, knee-deep in the 21st century, using phrases like orgasm gap. Actually, I don't like the phrase. Personally, I think it's misleading. It implies at first glance that women suffer from some sort of lag or deficiency in the orgasm department. As far as I'm concerned, there is no spoon. And by spoon, I mean orgasm gap. There's just a gap in the way we think human sexuality is supposed to be. And that's the gap I want to close. The perception gap. Perceptions need to change. That will be the thing I'll be hammering home throughout this series. Perception is everything. There is no fucking spoon. In fact, that's the credo of the eloquent in the room. Cognitive bias. We think we know things because we're told things, or we learn things by watching our parents and other role models, or we get treated a certain way, and all that locks us into paradigms, and then one day you find yourself in a very small space with your face mushed up against the arse cheek of a giant grey mammal, and you can't ignore the awkward truth anymore. I'm convinced that the first half of life is spent absorbing a whole lot of bullshit and the second half is spent figuring that out. I'm not sure if we ever have it all figured out, but uh, it seems to be the reason we're here at all. So, the phrase orgasm gap, which launched a bunch of half-assed online articles, seems to have been conjured up in the wake of a 2016 study that revealed that Roughly only 60% of women have an orgasm during most heterosexual encounters. The study interviewed thousands of Americans of various sexual orientations and asked them how many times they experienced orgasm during sexual activity during the previous month. I'm not sure if the survey also asked who was sick that month or who lost their job that month or any other random factor that could affect the outcome, but hey, that's just the way my nitpicking brain works. The results came back that the highest achievers were straight, gay and bisexual men. Yeah, I know. Shocker, right? Then gay women. Again, surprising. Then bisexual women just ahead of heterosexual women, which brought up the rear. I'm not sure how that factored in. Anyway... 
Breaking it down further, they discovered that women in long-term relationships were more inclined to have orgasms every time than women having casual sex. They also drilled down to things like who received oral sex, who was into dressing up, fantasizing, playing games, all sorts of stuff that points at not just relationship relationship trends, but attitude to sex, which is stuff most of us already know, don't we? The article would then predictably point out the other stats, and that is that at least two-thirds of women never climax during sexual intercourse, unless there's some additional stimulation involved. And no, that's not a segue into a lengthy rant about the clitoris. Okay, who had 20 minutes as the time that I would finally bring up the word clitoris? Congratulations, you can collect your prize in the foyer on the way out. Heads up, it's not a vibrator. Guys, this is all old news. There's been a lot of studies in medical journals, articles in the press, and stand-up comedy directed at the clitoris, and yet... Many clitoris owners are still walking away from the carnal gift shop empty-handed. Go figure, hey? Is it because they're all not speaking up? Is it because they haven't figured it out yet? Or is it because it is simply not working for them? Or is it because all that focus on our bits and all that pressure to have particular kinds of orgasms hasn't turned out to be all that much fun or spiritually fulfilling. I think it might be a little bit of column A, column B, column C, D, E, through to Z. And there are many culprits in this case, but for the sake of putting at least one suspect on the stand early on, I'm going to go out on a limb here and go with option T, and that rhymes with P, and that stands for porn. Because when you combine all the clip press with the ubiquity of porn, what seems to have evolved out of that is a generation of people who think that the clit is a one-size-fits-all magic elevator button guaranteed to get everyone to the top floor in no time. Oh no. Oh no, 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 no. The clitoris is a complex vastly intricate, incredibly potent instrument, and I'm definitely going to get around to talking about it, but for the time being, where we're going, we don't need roads. And by roads, I mean clitoris, clitori. I'm definitely going to talk about it and all the other spots as well, but first, I want to play with your perceptions. Because we're always talking about the clitoris these days and not talking enough about the human being attached to it. That's why I haven't mentioned anatomy yet. And if you've seen a vulva or two in your life, that's another reason. They are as diverse as every face on the planet and you won't catch me referring to it as my lady parts. It's my fucking vulva, okay? And I love it. But I love all of me. I wish it didn't take me so long to get up on my fucking soapbox and say that, but there it is. My sexuality is a huge part of who I am, but that's only because I'm a human. 
the orgasm stats as they stand now haven't really changed much in decades. You've got to do the math, because if making women more orgasmic was purely and utterly and solely about her clitoris, then more women, more women even, would be coming all the time. Why aren't we? Well, I am, but why isn't everyone else? My next guess is most people haven't really bothered to think much about what an orgasm actually is and why a woman's mood matters as much as it does. Let's face it, female orgasms can be elusive or profuse from woman to woman or within one woman's lifetime, depending on her personal journey, her inhibitions or lack thereof, her sexual assertiveness her time of the month, the time of her life, her willingness to experiment, her, her using her imagination, her exercising her pelvic floor, whether or not she masturbates a lot, her mental health, her moral attitude, her body image, and whether or not she's ever been pregnant or experienced vaginal childbirth, which, believe it or not, can affect orgasmic potential quite positively. And that's just a few variations to ponder. You might notice I don't place too much emphasis on one's sex partners involved in this involvement, I should say, in this fiasco. It helps to have a knowledgeable and patient lover, but there can be no party if the guest of honour is not willingly present. And likewise... Even the most inept clown can accidentally nudge a highly libidinous woman to multiple screaming orgasms if all she really needed was a warm body and a witness. Everything is much easier for men to wrap their head around and hand around when it comes to discovering the nuances of their own pleasure pretty early on. It's popularly believed that girls aren't similarly as curious or as orgasmic when they're young. Except... That's bullshit. There's loads of research out there to back me up, but I've also conducted my own surveys. In the past year, I've been asking women what age they were when they first became orgasmic. 62% so far have said they were under the age of 15. This includes 46% between the ages of 10 and 15, and 16% that were younger than 10. The next most popular age group was between 16 and 19, and then it slowly dwindles down from there, with a few women not having their first orgasm till well into their 30s, and about 3% of my respondents were unsure whether they'd had one. But I haven't been able to survey enough people to be perfectly representative, but come on, that 62% is hard to ignore. I also did a survey about 20 years ago and I was really focused on um, childhood sexuality. So I asked everyone what their earliest memories were and loads of loads of respondents did say they were quite young. Um, I also asked if they could do anything differently, what would they do? And surprisingly, some women responded, well... I would have, if I knew what to do, I would have had more fun earlier on. (laughs) Nobody said they were going to wait. They were just like, I just wished I I knew what I was doing. I also asked 
my recent survey respondents how their first orgasm happened. More than two-thirds said from masturbating while they were alone. Six percent said masturbating with someone else. Ten percent said during intercourse with extra stimulation. Nine percent said during intercourse without anything extra going on. Four percent said during oral sex. 2.5% said while kissing, and there were also a few of us who had them in our sleep without having a clue what they were. Yep, that's first orgasm. Age-wise, girls tend to have their first orgasms pretty young. So what you have to deduce from that, or what I am in my hot take, my theory... It's just the influence of influences of our families, society, religion, the media, unenlightened friends, partners, and pornography that gets in the fucking way of us having a healthy attitude towards our sexuality. And that's why many of us start then clamming up. No pun intended. I asked these same women how orgasmically empowered they felt during sex with other people. 52.5% described themselves as experiencing orgasm every time. But close to half of those people stipulated that they required loads of patience and persistence from their partner to get there. You know what? I think that's just their perception. My perception is that Most of these women's partners didn't view themselves as being particularly patient. Rather, they just had a realistic approach and probably found it immensely mutually pleasurable. That left more than 40% experiencing various difficulties, with a quarter of those describing themselves as super orgasmic on their own. They just don't climax with other people. Another quarter said they probably would come more often with other people in the room, but they always feel too embarrassed about how long it takes, so they give up. Uh, A third quarter took charge of their own climax by masturbating during sex. Bravo to you. Um, And a few others said they usually waited till after their partner fell asleep and then they'd masturbate. So let's just accept most women know where their orgasm is. It's just that around a third struggle to locate their orgasm when someone else is doing the driving. That's just a divergence. I won't say gap. You can't make me. It's a psychological divide between what women deem to be acceptable sexual behavior when they're on their own and how that changes when someone else is in the room. I've only conducted a couple of real-time, in-person orgasm workshops, and that was the common story. Women really wanted to feel more empowered, but had no idea how to go about it. The saddest thing is it pretty much boiled down to them not prioritizing their pleasure at all. They were too busy floating outside their bodies during sex, judging themselves while assuming performative behaviors that didn't really reflect how they felt deep down. This shit really breaks my heart. So I will briefly mention the clitoris again, just to illustrate something. At the beginning of my workshop, I held up a 3D pic of a clitoris in all its glory. If you haven't seen it, go Google it now. I'll wait. Just kidding. 
it is a sight to behold and I'm I'm really looking forward to talking about it at length. But I told everyone to look, I told everyone in the room to look at it and then I dramatically and with a great flourish threw it across the room. I said to them what I already said to you, the clitoris is not a magic elevator button, especially if you don't feel comfortable in your own skin. In fact, remember that earlier remark I made about not using my hands? That was quite a confession. That's because touching my clitoris at first didn't feel great at all. It felt weird, a bit annoying, even weirder if someone else touched it. I'd be like, no, don't. I told this to women at the workshop and... It was a really wonderful moment of connection when at least three of them started nodding vigorously as if to say, oh my God, I thought that was just me. So surprise, surprise, folks. While arousal hits us all pretty early as innocent children who haven't learned to place judgments on either the feeling or ourselves for feeling it, learning about how to become aroused through touch is sometimes a learned skill, an acquired taste. Because that's right, perception is everything. In order to lose all inhibition and yield to orgasm, many of us have to unlearn what we have learned. Yeah, right, that's pretty lame. This is why I didn't want to get too caught up talking about the clitoris and other anatomy just yet. Because where I'm ultimately heading in this series with this workshop slash forensic investigation is a whole other level of perception and awareness. Because the real game changer for me in shifting my perspective happened just before my 29th birthday. I was in labor with my second son and in amongst it all, the weirdest thing happened. One of my contractions was undeniably orgasmic. Yep. I'll describe that in more detail in a later episode. Because I've set the scene now for us to juxtapose that with the very nature of orgasm. What is it? Why do we have them? How would we allow ourselves to behave if we were to take away all the superficial aspects like performance, appearance, the size and shape of our genitalia, moral double standards and patriarchal notions around intercourse being the main event. Guys, there is no fucking spoon, all right? Orgasmic energy dwells within all of us. It's just there. And yeah, I'm going to say it. The force is especially strong in women. When I lay it all out for you, you'll realise that we've all been under mass hypnosis. Stockholm Syndrome, if you will. Most research until recently of female orgasm was done via looking at it as an adjunct to male sexuality rather than the other way around. So let's toy with that concept next time and I promise I'm not going to drown you in statistics. (laughs) I'll leave that spinning top there 
More to come in future episodes where we'll talk more about the primal origin of orgasm, the neural network of orgasm, and yeah, sure, why not? The clitoris and all the spots, which will take us to the planet of the apes. Dudes, I'm so excited to talk about bonobos. All this stuff, oh my God, was so hard to build a cohesive narrative around. So I hope you got all of that. But without that context, I couldn't launch into a dialogue around the patriarchy, female empowerment or sex positivity. Because these days that phrase seems to conjure visions of pole dancing and twerking. Not that there's anything wrong with that per se. It's just not my bag, baby. It's not related to my definition of sex positivity. In 2020, I feel better in my own skin than ever before in my life. But I also feel weirdly disenfranchised. As I said, this is not the future I signed up for. So it's time to shake things up a bit. As Dolly Parton famously said, Find out who you are and do it on purpose. Apparently, I'm this guy. Before I sign off, I want to give a shout out to a German guy by the name of Tom Woxham because six years ago, he uploaded that funky Space Age backing music I used for the opening theme and made it available for free online. I found it last week and I couldn't find any context contact details, so... Thanks, Tom. Danke, Shane. Um, thanks for listening. If you also want to be a part of the conversation with feedback about topics you'd like me to discuss or you have questions, please hit me up at theeloquentintheroom.com or at the Eloquent in the Room on all the socials as well as theeloquentintheroom at gmail.com. Lastly, if you like where I'm going with this podcast and think others would benefit from listening in, please do everyone a solid and hit like, hit subscribe, leave a rating, leave a review. These are all the things that will direct more traffic my way. Thank you in advance. In other words, please, you know, do everything you can to point at the eloquent in the room. Now, to celebrate, because it's the first episode... Just for funsies, I threw together a bit of a naughty mashup for the closing theme. This technical shit is fun. Please don't sue me.
Making sex is like Chinese dinner. It ain't over until you both get your cookies. So, remember I said that.